My name is Panos. My name is Sebastian. Welcome to Curiosity. Welcome. So today we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna go into Da Vinci. Yeah, we're going. Uh, we're talking about the man, the inventions, the art, everything that was cool about Da Vinci. And he has a, an incredible wealth of of both inventions and art. He he was the the Renaissance man. He didn't really dev- well. I shouldn't say he devoted himself to everything and anything rather than one particular topic. And it, I don't know. I think it's something that's really close to the both of us because you know as scientists and doing podcasts, it's it's nice to see someone else kind of yes, doing arts. We're the modern Renaissance men. I wouldn't go that far, no, but we're not. At we're least not we're trying. Close. We're not even close. Uh, I, I feel as if if Da Vinci was alive today, he'd be making a podcast too. Oh, I totally would be making a podcast. It would be a weird one too. <laughs> like some of the things that he came up with, they're just like, "How did you?" What? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so Seb, why why Da Vinci? Why Da Vinci? Um, well, he was, like I said, a Renaissance man. Everything he thought about, he revolutionized. Hmm. Um, so we're gonna get into all the inventions, all the art. But let's start off how he started off. Uh, with birth? With birth. <laughs> I want you to, <laughs> I want to describe the details of his birth. No, no, no. That uh, would be so creepy, it's by actually, the way. It's interesting because a lot of the earlier years for Da Vinci weren't really annotated or much documented. Naturally. Um, so well, we'll start off with his, with his name. Uh, Leonardo Da Vinci is not actually, well, it is his name technically. Da Vinci uh, in, in the Times described where he was from. Okay. So his actual name is Leonardo Dice Piero da Vinci. So it's kind of like the Swedish Peter son, son of Peter. Exactly. So it's Leonardo, son of Piero from da Vinci. Uh, he was born in Nacciano, Tuscany. It's a little town called Vinci, hence da Vinci. Naturally. And his father was uh, an attorney, uh, sorry, an attorney and a notary. And his mother was a peasant mother. Just, you know, she was, she was a mother. Was, yeah. Back then that was, and now it's a full-time job, so... Um, and he had uh, siblings, 17. 17 siblings. Of which none were, um, they're all half-brothers and sisters. So, like, he was the only child of his mother and father, but there was a whole bunch surrounding So, either him. his mother was, I don't, I don't want to say promiscuous, or many men, or his father really just spread his sperm. I don't know what which one it was, but... Well, it could be the whole thing of, like, having a lot of kids because a lot of them died. Like, the the, morta- <laughs> the infant mortality... No, I'm not, I'm not even kidding. I, you're right, yeah. You know, they didn't have modern medicine then, so... Yeah. You know, have 17 and hope that six live. Yeah. But then 17... And you didn't have to pay for $35,000 tuitions every year. So. Uh, that's a whole <laughs> other Think of the story. college. Think of the college. Think of the children. Think of the children. Uh, so, yeah. So, you... Yeah, you've got the, the, so, the early yeah. years covered. So, yeah. So, in 1966... Uh, 1966? 1466. <laughs> uh, at the age of 14, he became an apprentice okay. um, to Verrocchio uh, in one of the finest workshops in Florence. Uh, and he apprenticed at his, a studio boy, basically. This is a place where he would learn all of the different skills that he would use later on in his life. Um, mm. But it wasn't just art, which I okay. found really cool. cool. Um, it was a vast range of technical skills, including drafting, chemistry, metallurgy, plaster casting, leatherworking, carpentry, drawing, S- painting, sounds sculpting. Like, like tech class on crack. It's like, it, that's it, amazing. It sounds incredible. And like yeah. he actually was, as it comes, no surprise, really good at them. Mm. Um and what was really interesting in, in that time is, you know, when you think of, of paintings, you think of, okay, this was painted by blank, and you assume that it was painted by just that person. Mm-hmm. Um, in Verrocchio's work sh- workshop, a lot of the work was actually done by his, uh, his employees. Uh, so mm. Leonardo actually collaborated with Verrocchio on the Baptism of Christ, oh. where, um, where Leonardo is known to uh, paint the young angel holding Jesus' robe. 
Okay. Well, the funny thing is, is that his depiction of Jesus was better than his master's. Okay. So after, you know, Verrocchio saw what Da Vinci did, he's just like, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Put down his, his <laughs> paintbrush and never painted again. He actually never painted again. Apparently. That's um, a man with honor, I suppose. Yeah. yeah and it's, uh, it's pretty incredible that someone that's, you know, it's, it's a great example of the student becoming the master. Sure. Yeah. Um, so at the age of 20, he was finished his, his training and became qualified as a master in the Guild of St. Luke. Ooh. Um, so this is basically like just, it kind of feels like a cult, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of like we accredit you for being uh, a master. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his father set him up a workshop. Cool. Uh, but he was really, really fond of Verrucchio. Um So he stuck around? Yeah, so he stuck around uh, and yeah, continued in his workshop working with Verrucchio mm-hmm. uh, up until... Uh, he decided to work in his own workshop. Yeah, that I, was... I don't know if it was the death of Verrocchio or that he just got, like, his imagination just grew I guess too big. eventually you have to do it, yeah. You have to, you have to, you have to walk the walk. Well, yeah. Um, and also, a side important note, that uh, Leonardo was, was homeschooled, so he didn't have any kind of proper training in uh, English or Latin. Uh, so everything that comes to his mind is, is born out of pure uh curiosity uh-huh. and he actually he referred to himself as almost sans letter uh, a man without letters so again mm. he was one of these people that s- self-taught yeah um, i also everything. read he was he was a bit of dyslexic too <laughs> well bloody amazing right, anyway um so yeah so let's take it off he in 1478 he has his own studio mm-hmm. and then a few years later uh much like many of the commissions of the time he was hired by the church Naturally. And the church wanted him to uh, to make what was called the Adoration of Magi. I think it's Magi. It's Italian. So yeah, let's, I'm go gonna, with that. Yeah, let's go with Magi. He actually never ended up finishing the project, um, mm. but what he had discovered or a new technique he had developed actually revolutionized. It added another layer to, to the field. Mm. So what he had done was generally in the early Renaissance, they had these rules of, of linear perspective. Okay? Okay. So there were, there were a lot of rules you had to obey when, when it came to that type of art. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one dared, uh, you know, deviate from it. And so what he did is that he had, um, he incorporated two new principles. So he joined the principles of clarity and the perspective of, cl- of color. So okay. what, what does that really mean? So the, the perspective of clarity is that he added a blur to to objects that were in the distance. Okay, so kind of it's um from it's, a, a f- it's a depth of field. Yeah, and you can see it in a lot of photography where you have something that's super close to you and you can't really see the background. Exactly. So when you really want to accentuate uh, the field in front of you or you want a particular object wherever in, in the image, you want to make it, that that's the distinct focus, you add a blur to everything else. And he naturally did that through his paintbrush. And this is something that you can see and it felt more realistic because it's actually how you live your life. You can't see things far off in the distance. They're kind of, they're vague for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, and the perspective of color. And so color, in this case, what he was able to do is that objects that were further in the background were more muted in hmm. color. So he was able to apply a whole new set of, of I don't want to say colors, but he was you know a complete new technique to give your eye focus to what was in front of you and really uh, allow yourself to kind of lose what was in the background if need be. Or you could focus on it if you wanted to. I do wonder like how he painted. And when I say that, I mean like did he start with the, the object of focus and then like start adding blacks and grays to the colors, you this, know? Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to brush on it a little later, but uh, you know what, maybe we should we should contact an artist of... 
because I don't know the, the, the beauty of the techniques of it. I'm sure it's absolutely phenomenal. As he was. As, as he was. Uh, so, unfortunately, he never actually finished that. <laughs> well. Um, you know, much like I'm sure many pieces uh, go unfinished, he left. He left to go work for the Duke of Milan. Okay. Okay. And the Duke of Milan uh, was, at the time, trying to favor or find himself favored by another gentleman uh, called Ludovico Sforza. And so what he did was that he hired Da Vinci mm-hmm. to make him a, uh, a piece for, Lu- for Ludovico. Okay. And when, uh, when Da Vinci did so, not only did he finish the piece to favor uh, Sforza. He actually he, finished it. He fin- yeah, he, de- he actually definitely finished it this time. He, uh, he found himself uh, intrigued by Sforza and wanted to, uh, to get a job. Hmm. He wanted to move on. He, once again, was, was constantly on the move. And Ludovico Sforza was an interesting character. He was the, uh, the Duke of Milan. And to kind of get that job, uh, Da Vinci wasn't trying to sell him on his art. Hmm. He was selling him on his engineering skills. Uh, he was obviously an inventor, and he was giving him ideas about war chariots, okay. about uh, about tanks, and obviously Ludovico saw this and said, "Well, you know, I have the modern day, you know, uh, Tesla or Elon Musk at my hands. Yeah. Let's let's profit from this." So he hired him, and they essentially worked together for the next seventeen years. And what's really interesting is you can see that a lot of the inventions, when you look at it through that lens. Uh, do actually lend themselves to war times. They do, yeah. It's it's so unfortunate because, well, you know, he was hired by a certain man who needed those things, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci was the furthest thing from uh, from a, a you know a, a war? warmonger. Yeah, he he was a he was very very gentile. Uh, in fact, I read on a side note that apparently he would go to the market and buy uh, animals or hens and whatnot and then set them free. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he was, he was a very lighthearted and beautiful man. Yeah. Uh, so it's unfortunate that so many of his inventions led to the creations of war, but anyway. Well, you can see a lot of inventions in general do come from wartime. I mean, yeah. it's, sadly, there is money in war. Yeah, there um, is. So if you have money, you have uh, good minds, you can come up with something. Yeah. Uh, one such invention that he uh, he is known known for, he's uh, thought to have revolutionized as a parachute. Okay, the parachute. Um, so there are. So what did he do? Well, there are mentions of parachutes in ancient Chinese and ancient Arabic texts, um, dating back even like before like BC. Mm-hmm. Um, but Da Vinci kind of actually had the plans and everything set out, uh, and this is how they're described. If a man is provided with a length of gummed linen cloth with a length of 12 yards on each side and 12 yards high, he can jump from any great height whatsoever without injury. <laughs> um, and and I was reading somewhere that this was basically to be able to go from building to building or from like uh, as, a, as a type of transport okay. um, to be able to escape um, easily from, from high buildings. So it's a very large piece of linen. So just imagine a square-based pyramid. Okay. So like imagine like the pyramids in, in Egypt. Sure. Um, in made linen. of wood. Okay. And then linen stretched over it. Wow. Okay. And uh, then held. And then held. So basically, you would just hold it with both hands, uh, and yeah, you would <laughs> I feel float. like that's a float. terrible idea. You would float to safety. Okay. Have uh, they recreated that since? They I'm sure. have. Oh yeah. Uh, there was uh, a BBC News article. A uh, skydiver by the name of Adrian Nicholas tested it uh, in 2000, I believe. Okay. Uh, and he was ballsy. <laughs> uh, you would have to be. How far did he hold on? Okay. Uh, th- there's like, there's like, uh, you know, if I hurt myself, it's gonna be bad. Right. Um, he found the ride to be smooth. He actually took it up in a hot air balloon. 
He took it up and okay, sure. And uh, and just at, at about three thousand meters, jumped out and just uh, grabbed. And he actually said that it was smoother than a lot of the more modern. Did parachutes. he have? A, did he have a parachute with him on him as well? He did have a parachute. Cheater! With him. Well, cheater! He he didn't put all his he faith. He's not a man of his convictions. Well, okay. he, he didn't put all his faith in some designs that are from 1483. <laughs> I feel okay saying. I don't know. The fact that he put it together and yeah, that, uh, well that it was done. a well smooth done. ride. Very well done. Um, the only thing that he said was uh, a little bit difficult is that it was really heavy. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, you don't have all of these. Uh, he was trying to create it properly and create it um, as legit as it was sure. back then. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, he said it was a, a really, really smooth ride. And yeah, he did pull his regular parachute at like some hundreds of feet, I think 500 feet, mm-hmm. just to make sure that his landing was smooth. Mm-hmm. But like the ride itself apparently was smoother than a nice. lot of... Uh, Modern a lot of day. the modern day stuff, yeah. which is which is cool, which is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, next invention, the aerial screw, aka what we know today as the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Uh, really impressive leap of of thinking when you think about it. I mean, this was uh, five hundred years ago. Yeah, he developed what we now know as a helicopter, but it's a, it was essentially at the time in his mind this. Think of it like a, a screw, mm-hmm. as you're you know screwing into the wall. And that design, that spiral pattern with, uh, again, linen, uh, which was obviously the readily available material at the time. Yeah. But at the base of it was this uh, very large, very heavy wooden uh, box, in a sense, box. And um, if you recall, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you know, a lot of cartoons, when you want to have something rotate, you would put these slaves at the ends and you'd make them rotate in this kind of spiral. Yeah, and always there's a whoosh. Yeah, there's always a whoosh, whoosh. Yeah. And some sort of chanting. Oh, we we Why is that the go-to? I, like that. I don't know. Um, so, so they had exactly that. Mm-hmm. Okay, no slaves. <laughs> it was, well, these, these were volunteers or voluntolds. And, um, and they would, they would, uh, there would be two people on each side. Uh, and they would walk, and they would walk around so that to us to create this kind of spiral motion for mm-hmm. the for the spiral linens. And in theory, if you know fast enough, it would create lift, and you would move up the ground. How much? How fast did these people have to go? Well, evidently, you can imagine that in terms of how fast the human could go, it requires engine-like speeds. Yeah. So the revolutions were just not even really close. And the fact that this whole thing weighed about a ton. Of course. So. They weren't getting anywhere fast, um, but again, it was the theory behind it. He was it was mm. the mental leap of saying, "Well, what if we were to create this kind of lift through the screw uh, device?" Does it talk at all about uh, what ins- like what inspired this? Because I know a lot of his inventions were um, were based on nature. That's very true. I did not find any. You know what? I'm sure it was, mm-hmm. but I can't say for certain. Okay. Um, I'm I'm sure he probably did. S- yeah, it wasn't that huge a leap he probably saw some kind of biological system that yeah. used you know maybe like flagella uh, i'm thinking of yeah so flagella uh are you know, like flagellum is is a is a um, for bacteria or other that they use to kind of swirl their way through media through water okay and it's a, it's a propulsion device cool yeah so very cool so uh da vinci was really known uh was well known for the way that he slept as well which is kind of weird okay um so the da vinci sleep pattern it was basically his way of fully utilizing his time uh so supposedly it consisted of napping for 30 minutes every three and a half hours uh it called the sleep of geniuses jesus uh, or the polyphasic sleep uh and the idea is that with this routine you're able to actually 
Uh, use 21 total hours of your day in a 24-hour period without that feeling tired. sounds horribly tiring. Uh, Napoleon didn't, did this, didn't he? He probably did. Uh, there were a lot of distinct individuals throughout history that used to do this. Yeah. Could you get into REM sleep that way? Uh, rapid, rapid eye movement sleep, which is when you dream? I don't think so. Uh, not, not in the slightest. If you uh, listen to our next episode on house, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, sleep states. But it usually mm. takes, I think you get into uh, beta... You get into alpha probably within about 30 seconds, alpha okay. brainwaves. Yeah. Um, and that's, you need to get into deeper sleep. Uh, you need more time. I wonder how, yeah, that sounds so, horrific. So it sounds horrific. What's more horrific for me, I don't know about you, but like waking up in the mornings. Right. Really terrible. Right. Um, so he actually devised an alarm clock. Of course he did. Uh, because, you know, if you're, you get tired, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so his alarm clock, get this. <laughs> okay, this is going to be good. Uh, so... Basically, what he had is is uh, constant dripping water going into a pail. Okay. Uh, this pail would fill up with water, and at a certain weight, mm-hmm. it would drop. Right. Simple. This dropping would lift up his legs. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, like, tied up his legs to a winch system based on the water, and when it was time for him to wake up, his legs got lifted. Oh, my God. Uh, so... Uh, I couldn't actually see any pictures of this, oh. so I don't know if he was, like, hanging upside down and, like, completely, right. like cartoonish... Uh, Cartoonish, tra- <laughs> stranded or trapped? Sure, like a but, road runner or something. Yeah, but it uh, apparently was fairly accurate, um, and as well, Da Vinci is thought to have um, not invented the clock in general. Um, okay. A lot of like in that time, the the late 1400s, mm-hmm. um, the clock was being more and more um, developed, more and more precisely. Sure. Um, and the the contribution that Da Vinci gave was that uh, he developed a, a gear and cog system that um, made the minute hand and the hour hand on separate mechanisms okay uh, giving them proper um, giving them proper accuracy for or that. Like, yeah, independent accuracy yeah okay, cool. so it's like you know if you have 60 rotation the rotations of the um, the minute hand you get one rotation of the sure the hour hand uh, and that and that allowed him to be like allowed him to have precision in the timing that he had sure uh, in the 15-minute schedule. Yeah, he also came up with an anemometer measuring wind. Okay. Um, again, it, it, cool. it kind of comes into the the helicopter idea. He was right. analyzing uh, a lot of a lot of nature to mm-hmm. be able to try and utilize it as much as possible. Especially if you're trying to figure out something about a flying machine, you probably need to know something about the air. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Um, okay, his next invention. He revolutionized the tank. The tank. Yeah. So I, I, ca- I have a riddle for you now. Okay. Okay. You have, um, let's say, a, a ton, one ton of material. Yeah. Okay. Whatever that material that may be. How do you increase the strength of this tank without increasing its weight or changing its material? So it's a design something. It's a design. Um, How do you do that? I'm thinking of a Death Star, to be honest. I'm thinking of like a <laughs> sphere. As opposed to like a square boxy thing, uh, which is, you know, uh, I, I feel like it would help. Okay. But uh, yeah, a sphere yeah. doesn't really roll. It does. Well, it does. <laughs> well, I think it would roll perfectly. But I can't imagine. Not with someone trying, in the eye, yeah. yeah. So the solution he proposed uh, was was close to what you're kind of talking about. Okay. It's really brilliant. So there's a picture of it uh, in many of his uh, sketches. And it looks... I kid you not, like the typical, stereotypical spaceship. Yeah, like the, you know the X-Files, I want yeah. to believe, that little spaceship? Yeah. So he made a tank that looks exactly like that. Huh. 
And the reason why, and the main key design feature in, in increasing its strength was, you know, against projectiles, of course, was that if you, if you induce or create a 45 degree angle or an increased angle rather than a very flat uh, surface, what you're doing is that you're increasing the amount of material that the bullet has to pierce through. Okay. So imagine, just imagine it this way. If you were to put your hand straight up, and you have a bullet, shoot it perpendicular, so straight on, okay? It would only have to pierce about, I don't know, two centimeters? Call it two centimeters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's say I create a 45-degree angle, or even more than that, let's Mm -hmm. say 50- or 60-degree angle, then the bullet has to pierce through more skin to get to all the way through the other side. Well, not only that, they have the the ability of uh, deflections as well. That's right. So in terms of projectiles, rather than having the force being absorbed completely... It just kind of bing right off hmm. uh, into the sky, and so obviously then, well, you've got like raining bullets, but that's another problem. That's another problem. For <laughs> Anyone another inside the tank is good to go. Yeah. Um, and so this this beautiful design had eight men inside. Okay. Okay. So there was eight men, and and again, is like a cranking system. So he had four men, two on each side for the wheels. Okay, so, uh, yeah, two on one side pushing the right wheels forward, two on the other side pushing the left wheels forward. And then the other four men were responsible for the marvelous 360 degrees cannon. Huh. Because evidently, you know, you're in the battlefield. You never know where uh, your uh, attackers, uh, your opposition may come from. Yeah. You want to be able to 360 move that that, that cannon and, and blow them to smithereens. Well, not only that, like you think of a, a modern day cannon, like, okay, you have that, ro- that rotating top that you can actually right. use. but. You know, if you don't have a full cannon, then you, the more people you have outside being able to shoot, probably the better. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was, it was his revolutionary design of 45 degree angles uh, causing ricochets and increased uh, depth okay. for penetration. And, of course, 360 degree cannon. Who doesn't want a 360 degree cannon? It's pretty cool. Uh, but, again, it was a very slow device. You needed eight men inside to, to drive it. And I, I don't know. I, I believe... Although for certain he developed it, I don't think it was ever actually constructed. A lot of his, unfortunately, a lot of his inventions are theoretical and they were designed, but never fabricated in reality. Or a lot of them are just sketches that they found much later. Yeah. Um, the same can be said about the robot that he made. He made a robot? He made a robot. It's called the Robotic, robotic Knight. Amazing. Uh, and really cool, actually. It was, um, it was said to have... Consisted of two working structures, uh, okay. managing the upper and lower body parts of the knight. Okay. Um, the upper pa- the upper part was a four factor system. It controlled the mo- the movements of the shoulders, hands, elbows, and wrists. Okay. Uh, and the lower half, the hips, the knees, the legs, and the an- the ankles. So it was a full f- like. It yeah, had that sounds. All of the pulley systems that were required. Is it like a puppet in a sense, or how how automated is this thing? Like it is more like a puppet than anything else. Okay. Um, but it is said that it was able to do. A whole bunch of independent motions, sitting down, standing up, moving its head, lifting its visor for some reason. Cool. Um, and yeah, it was kind of kind of like a puppeteer type thing. Okay. Uh, and these sketches were found uh, in 1957. Uh, and oh, there was, wow, okay. Yeah. So again, it was one of these incomplete works where he's like, oh, I think about it. And if, if you actually look at the pictures, it's actually impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the human body and, and how da Vinci actually knew about the human body. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can tell by his sketches that he understood how almost how muscles worked and, and build a robotic knight um, 
that kind of mimicked it. Cool. Uh, and there was also a researcher by the name of Mark Rosheim. Okay. Um, that actually decided to try and remake this robotic knight. Cool. Uh, based on the designs. And it took him five years to actually like figure out the designs, make sure that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and he was able to recreate it. And, and, and what did it do? Uh, it did all of the things that I said before. Sit up, okay. stand, um, you know. Uh, but we can't you know. make it like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I saw something. I'm thinking. You know what I'm thinking? This is kind of lame. I'm just thinking of the Simpsons thing where the uh, with the hit the 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 hits the the yes button. What's it? The, uh, the peacock? The no. Where's the any key? Anyone? Yeah. Where's the any key? Uh, <laughs> what was really cool is that uh, Rosheim actually like brought this out and uh, and showed it to NASA. Okay. Uh, and they used some of the designs uh, brought through. Uh, this this research okay. in the robots that NASA is creating now. So really? Yeah, apparently. Uh, th- I didn't get any more specifics. You'd think it'd be a little more sophisticated what they're building, but maybe maybe the fundamentals. I guess I don't know. Well, it's it's understanding the pulley systems, you know, because okay. like. Uh, uh, yeah, I but I would imagine nowadays new robots aren't really using pulley based systems. <laughs> But the concepts are still the same, you know, okay. like understanding hinges and understanding joints is really, it's not yeah. an easy, trivial thing to, yeah. to actually discover. Like, mm. I don't know if you've ever seen robots, um, robots trying, like trying, humans trying to figure out how to walk and not make it look super uh, oh, weird yes, and bizarre. Like, I've seen like robots on treadmills and uh, they're trying to, to master the balancing act of walking and yeah, eh, interesting stuff. It's interesting, but it's one of those things that like, you know, if, if even if you understand the human body, it's hard to to put it into work. Sure. And Da Vinci had a, an in depth knowledge of the human body. It was able to um, make a, a robot that that mimicked all of the the proper muscles and everything. Yeah. Uh, there's actually the Da Vinci surgical system, uh, which Vinci. is named after Da Vinci because again he had this love of of the anatomy, uh, and it's actually really really cool. Okay. Uh, because it it facilitates complex surgery with minimal invasiveness. Okay. Um. So basically. I think you you've you got a little better better of a, uh, an explanation. Yeah. So, as I recall, I've seen this in a video, and it's extremely cool. So the surgeon doesn't even have to be in the same room as the patient, and what happens is that he's in this kind of uh, this control room, and he sits down, and he uh, connects every single one of his features, or sorry, uh, every every single one of his fingers to these rings. Uh, so he kind of it's almost like a little uh, half glove. He just he puts his hands in there, and he's able to meticulously control uh, each one of his fingers, which corresponds to a micro movement mm. uh, in the machines. Yeah. So you have these very these two very large arms in the in the in the surgery room, and uh, and then you have the surgeon somewhere else. But he's obviously seeing everything through video cameras. And, and there's nurses around. And there's of course there's nurses around. Yeah. And uh, and as he's moving, you know, uh, a very large movement of his index finger. Uh, only equates to perhaps a few millimeters in terms of movement on the robot. And so that's why they're able to do such very small uh, surgical cuts uh, with such precision. And it's far superior because not only do you have the technology of having very minimal movements, but now you can utilize uh, cameras yeah. and laparoscopes. So you're able to not only um, do short, small movements, but you're able to see a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's used for a whole variety of different types of surgeries. True, um, yeah. Uh, cardiac, general, gynecological, head and neck. So a lot of these like really, really precise ones where you nick it, mm-hmm. you're kind of screwed. Yeah, um, yeah. So being able to minimize the movement of the actual device itself, super helpful. That and of course, the the smaller the incision, the smaller the chances of infection. So, you, which is a very large problem with surgeries in general. Yeah, you want to so make sure you prevent any kind of infections. 
So, um, so yeah, so the next invention, this was really cool, although I don't think it ever really took off. <laughs> it's called the self-propelled car. Um, it's not quite a car in the sense that you'd be thinking about it, but the way it came about was was also very cool. Um, Ludovico, uh, Ludovico was having a party one night, and... As any good party, you as need any, to have a way to get home. Well, <laughs> no, it wasn't for them. They would never get home. Um, he he wanted to impress his company. Naturally. And when you have a guy like uh, Da Vinci around with the mind that he has, uh, it's it's pretty easy to impress others. Yeah. So he, he gave him the proposition. He said, you know what? I want something to impress them. I want to wow them. I want to you know establish my social superiority, superiority, prowess, sure. And he said, you know, build me a self-propelled car. <laughs> so he did. And um, it doesn't quite look like a car in the sense, but it looks like a, imagine like a small cart. Does uh, it kind of look like a, one of those dollies that's like on the floor with the four wheels? That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, it's like a, a dolly, but with a, a much more sophisticated gearing design. So how far can it go, though? Like, <sighs> So this is the thing. So based on the gears and whatnot, and if you fully crank it, uh, someone again, has recently made it based yep. on the designs. Uh, it gets about 40 meters. <laughs> that, you know what? That's, uh, you know, from the fridge to your seat, your lazy boy. You can get, yeah, maybe a beer from wherever yeah. you are. Yeah. That's assuming that somehow you get the beer on the cart. We won't talk about that part. Well, it's self-programmable. Huh. So, so let's, yeah, let's bring it a little forward as well. So he didn't just build this cart that can propel itself forward. He had developed a design whereby if he used... Uh, specific, um, I'll say like wooden, wooden, yeah, wooden nubs or wooden, wooden pegs. pegs. Probably. Let's say pegs. Um, if he had placed those pegs in a certain order and based on the angle where he was putting them, he could devise uh, an actual route hmm. that that the car would would propel itself. Cool. So it wasn't just one of those one peg would equate to a certain angle and then there it goes. He would put several pegs so it would turn left for a few meters and then turn right and then left and then left and then right. And this makes sense. I don't know if you've ever done any robotics. A bit, yeah. Um, I took one course in, in college. It's, you know. Um, and yeah, and it's really interesting. Like if you think of, of wheels and just stopping one of the wheels, you can, you know, turn right if you stop the left wheel. Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes sense that like if you were to try and create something that's programmable, that you like kind of stop one Prevent, wheel uh, yeah. by putting like a peg in there for a certain amount of rotations. Because all of these things are based on, um, on cogs and, and gears. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Self-propelled car. Cool. Last one I got was, uh, was a diving suit. Oh, the diving suit. Yeah. Yeah. So. Basically, what they were trying to do is find a way to uh, to treat the invasion of the Turks in the late 1400s. Uh, the uh, and, and the Turks were really good at, uh, they had a really good navy. Okay. Uh, so what they wanted to do was try and kill the enemy trucks. Uh, sorry, enemy Boats. ships. Yeah, yeah trucks. <laughs> uh, so basically what he suggested was, okay, let me take some people, put them underwater, and they'll just like punch a hole in the bottom. Amazing. Uh Funny enough, the Venetian army, not really impressed. They're like, this is weird. What? Like, yeah. They they were really not impressed. And they're like, uh, Da Vinci, do, He's do whatever. He's a human missile. Like, yeah. what more do you want? Uh, I I don't know. It was one of these things that they just didn't find that impressive. So, again, it's one of these sketches. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, it's it's pretty simple. Uh, a simple design. It's manufactured out of leather and breathing tubes uh, okay. made from cane. Okay. Uh, and you can imagine it as basically having a helmet, a sealed helmet of leather, 
with two snorkels coming out. <laughs> sounds safe to me. Sounds really safe. Uh, and and yeah, and those two tubes were actually connected to a diving bell. Okay. Uh, so in uh, in Alexander, like Alexander the Great is, is famously known for going into one of these diving bells. Okay. So uh, what's, a, what's a diving bell? So a diving bell allows uh, the user to go down to really, really deep um, deep diving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically the concept is imagine taking a really, really heavy bell, mm-hmm. having it completely flush as it goes in the water. Okay. And you have this pocket of air. Right. So this pocket of air allows you to have some place to have air, mm-hmm. but also to have uh, an exchange of oxygen. Okay. Um, so we know now that like more modern day dri- divers, like you need to have a certain level of CO2, certain level of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but for them, it allowed them to go underwater for long amounts of time. Interesting. So long so that they would even um, bring a bladder with them, like a, a sorry, a collection bottle for urine. See, um, I, I, you're in the pool. Just give her. <laughs> no. Uh, you know what? Maybe it's because the, it was a full suit, a full leather suit. Uh, oh, I suppose. Yeah, but then you and still you can't have make to you can't make a yeah. You, you can't know. make a little pouch that opens up, I guess. Well, you never know. <laughs> Maybe the people didn't want to get wet. They were afraid of the water. All right. I'm sure know. they had their reasons. But yeah, so they were able to, with the diving bell and with these basically long canes, mm-hmm. kind of like snorkels, able to uh, to actually go underwater for long amounts of time. Very cool. Which is pretty cool. Um, so I have, I have two more, but uh, one of them is very quick. Uh, he also invented the 33-barreled organ gun. <laughs> Organ gun. It's exactly what you think it is. It looks, it has similarities to an organ, which has, you know, the multiple piping systems. Yeah. And it's meant as the ancient uh, Gatling gun type style. So what happens was uh, evidently cannons had a, a large, a large destructive power. But once you shoot it, that was it. Right. Yeah. Uh, the time it took for it to cool down, to reload, to reshoot. Yeah. Okay. So you ca- you can't miss. So Da Vinci saw this, and he's obviously you know he he thought to himself, well, this is a problem. We need something that's faster acting, faster shooting, and so he devised this um, this kind of wheelbarrow like system. Yeah. Where uh, there were eleven barrels, or sorry, eleven uh, organs hmm. pipes that would shoot all at once. And then he would rotate it, and as he rotated, a new eleven set of of, uh, of organ pipes were shooting again. And then once he was done, he would just rotate it, and you could do it in a sense where it was almost like it was actually the same type of uh, design uh, as the British Army when they had you know when they were in uh, a single file, yeah, and they would shoot. And then the row in front of them would, would, would drop, and then the other guys behind them would shoot. So there was this constant, you know, active yeah. shooting, and you'd never have a downtime. Cool. And so that was essentially his his uh, his objective towards it, is just to never stop shooting. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, it, it prevents from having, I know in a lot of uh, movies from, from older times, sure. uh, it's always someone, you know, you shoot the gun and then you pass it off to your squire. That's, that's right. like doing another one that for you. That pumps, exactly. Um, and as he's doing it, yeah, exactly. And it's a constant rotation, but this allows you to uh, probably like pack the 11 as the other 11 are shooting, which, you know, it's a modern day, gu- basically a modern, modern day, day machine, uh, yeah. machine gun. Yeah, exactly. And uh, very last but not least, and probably has has influenced the world the most, ball bearings. Ball bearings. So if you're not familiar with ball bearings, if you've ever cleaned your rollerblades or opened your bike up, uh, the wheels of the bike, 
there are these very small spheres or these little spherical uh, marble type. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And what it allows is essentially frictionless movement. So when you know the 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 the, the softer the or the, the the less friction there is when you're rolling a wheel, um, the less energy it takes. And this is really important. Um, I, I think that the ingenuity of this is being able to create a perfect sphere because there's yeah. any per imperfections is what's going to give you that lag. Right. And um, and so yeah, if you ever I, mean, I I used to do this when I was young cleaning out my my rollerblades. At, at the middle of, of the, the wheel, there was just like about, I think it was like about a dozen smaller little metallic spheres. Hmm. And they roll so beautifully well that, well, evidently when you're rollerblading, you feel nothing and it's almost effortless. Yeah. Well, something has to take that energy and that's what it's doing. So he invented ball bearings. Cool. Which, yeah, it's, it's ingenuity and, and applications are really endless. And he had many inventions that uh, we're not talking about. Right. Those are the ones that we were like, okay, these ones, they're just cool. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like Leonardo da Vinci is more known for his art than he is for his inventions. I would say. I, I would agree with you only because of the Mona Lisa and, and yeah, many others. But yeah, the first I one, agree with you, I yeah. think the, the, his most famous, arguably, even though the Mona Lisa is really famous, is The Last Supper. So I think we're going to leave it there um, because this thing is getting really long. It's getting long, and I feel like I'd, I'd get tired of my own voice, too. So we're going to stop at the inventions, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci has an incredible body of work of art. Amazing. Uh, that we're going to talk about in part two. Sure. I uh, want to big give a big shout out to CHUO for helping us out and letting Thank us use their space. Thank you so much. And you can find us on social media. Ah, uh, the Twitter. On the Twitter, curiosity underscore pod. And Gmail? Uh, Curiosity.pod at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts. Your, Send, you know, tell your, us how you're doing. And tell us, you know, if there's any topic you want us to address. We're also on iTunes. We're also on iTunes. And you, you should rate our podcast. Give us, give us five stars, I hope. Yeah, absolutely five stars. And you better us, give us five. Mom, give me five stars. And uh, leave us a review. Uh, tell us how we're doing. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we, we do these every once in a while. And we appreciate it. Yeah. And it tells us how we're doing. Yeah. All right. So that's it from us. Thanks a lot for listening. Talk to you soon.